Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here and our podcast audience and our radio audience. It's my great pleasure to introduce Ed Larson again, Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, and he has a new book, a dual biography on Franklin and Washington, and he's here to speak to us again, and we're really happy to have him. Thank you. Thank you so much, George. It is a delight to be here. I've never had people worry sitting out there thinking I'm too thin. That's never been one of my worries. But I do thank you so much for having me back. I'm going to read little bits from the book, talk about it in between, read little bits. But rather than flipping her through the pages of the book, I just printed it off. Um, So let me just begin and then I'll talk a little bit. My dear friend, were the last words that Benjamin Franklin addressed to George Washington. They came at the end of a letter written in what Franklin knew would be his final year of life. Washington closed his response to Franklin with the salutation, your sincere friend. In this exchange, written in the first year of Washington's presidency, each expressed, and I'm quoting here, undying respect and affection for the other, with Franklin adding, esteem, and Washington topping him with veneration. At the time, Franklin and Washington were the two most admired individuals in the United States and the most famous Americans in the world. Their final letters to each other represented a fitting end to a three-decade-long partnership that more than any other pairing would forge the American nation. Their relationship began during the French and Indian War when Franklin supplied the wagons uh, for British General uh, Edward Braddock's ill-fated assault on Fort Duquesne, and Washington buried the general's body under the dirt road traveled by those retreating wagons. Both had warned Braddock against the frontier attack. Rekindled in 1775 during the Second Continental Congress, this friendship continued through the Revolution, Constitutional Convention, and the establishment of the federal government. Perhaps because of differences in their age, background, manner, and public image, their relationship was not widely commented on then and remains little discussed today. But it existed and helped to shape the course of American history. Both have been hailed by historians as, quote, the first American. But they were friends first, and unlike Adams and Jefferson, never rivals. Their relationship gained historical significance during the American Revolution when Franklin led America's diplomatic mission to Europe and Washington commanded the Continental Army. Victory required both of their efforts to succeed, and their success required coordination. This historic collaboration when coupled with their role as the two most prominent delegates at the Constitutional Convention, helped to found a nation and propel a global experiment in liberty and Republican rule. Well, that's sort of my introduction that I wrote for the book. There's more words to it, but that gives you where I start. Now, first, I must say it's a different sort of partnership than we often think of, because it was a partnership of equals. Usually we think of hierarchical teams, say Washington and Hamilton, or 
or Jefferson and Madison or Lincoln and his team of rivals. But there are also teams of equals, such as Roosevelt and Churchill during the Second World War, or Johnson and Martin Luther King in passing the Civil Rights Act. Both were essential in both of those pairings. But they had separate greatness with critical encounters along the way. Now, one of the things that appealed to me is the writing challenge. One of the reasons I took this up. Because every historian describes those two men as the essential Americans, the only two essential people to American liberty. Both Washington and Franklin separately were necessary. So I was curious how they worked together. The writing challenge was try to trace both of their stories. It's easy when it's a hierarchical relationship. You can just follow Washington and Hamilton working hand in glove. But here we have people coming together and going apart over time in very essential ways. So the writing challenge was was one thing I found fun. And what I ended up doing was tracing the basic story of each man. And then when they came in contact, which they did repeatedly, expanding it out much more completely, beginning with the French and Indian War. Now, with that French and Indian War, those of you who who may remember it, it started, (laughs) may remember it from your history stories, it started over the Ohio country. The French pushed down into the Ohio country, the Ohio River Valley, around what's now um, Pittsburgh, and started claiming it. British colonies of Pennsylvania and Virginia, by their weirdly worded charters, had overlapping claims to that same territory. So when the French came down, they were invading Pennsylvania and Virginia, which overlapped. Now, by a happenstance, Washington had risen, by this time, fairly young, risen to be the commander of the Virginia militia commander of the Virginia troops. He did it sort of by happenstance because he was the third son of a plantation owner, but the first two sons had died. Lawrence was his oldest brother, half-brother. And um, so he'd inherited the, he was inheriting the plantation, but he also inherited the head of the, being head of the militia. His, his Lawrence had earned it by his previous warfare in an earlier British war, the War of uh, Queen Anne. Franklin had... Um, So Washington was head of the Virginia military, but what people don't realize is Franklin was head of the Pennsylvania militia. He had, by dint of hard work and sheer brilliance, risen as an immigrant to Pennsylvania, an immigrant who had fled um, being an indentured servant in Massachusetts, fled to the separate colony of Pennsylvania, and risen up to become one of the wealthiest men there, a brilliant publisher, the producer of an almanac that was read avidly throughout the colonies, a new, several newspapers, a whole chain of, 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 of printing presses up and down the East Coast, uh, head of the uh, colonial mail service, and a multimillionaire. He was also, Pennsylvania was then controlled either by the proprietors, the Pens from over in, in England, or the local Quakers. And the proprietors didn't have any interest in fighting or spending their money to fight, and the Quakers wouldn't fight. So by this time, Franklin was already world famous as a scientist. And he had, ris- he had gone into the state legislature and was basically controlling the third party, the non-Quaker party 
the anti-proprietary part in the in the um, in the um, legislature. And so when the war broke out, everybody gave control to him because he was willing to fight. And so he was made colonel of the militia. That's the highest rank you have, and actually was a really good military leader. He stopped the massacres. He built a chain of forts. He went out with the men. So th- in that time. Washington and Franklin were constantly coming together because they were fighting over the same territory in tandem. So that's how they got to know each other. And rather than go into all the details of it, let me just read a little passage as a sort of summation of how that affected them. From their work as officers in charge of the militia of their respective colonies, they had learned similar lessons from the French and Indian War. First, the British had different objectives from their American colonists. The British wanted to keep their colonies divided and dependent, Washington concluded, and would readily tax them without representation. Washington found the British unwilling to secure the frontier, except as it served their larger geopolitical interests. Second, American colonists would always remain subordinate to their British counterparts. Washington's bitter frustration with rank confirmed this. He pleaded for a royal commission without receiving one and was compelled to submit to inferior British officers. As for Franklin, when Pennsylvania's proprietors, who still ran the colony within broad parameters sent by Parliament, heard of his appointment at the end of the war as the Assembly's agent in London, they dismissed his influence in England. Mr. Franklin's popularity is nothing here, Tom Penn coolly sneered. He will be looked upon very coldly by the great people. Third, the American colonies would benefit from greater union as reflected in uh, Franklin's Albany plan and Washington's call for joint intercolonial military action. After all, it was a force composed mainly of troops from five different colonies and not from England, that did finally drive the French from Fort Duquesne. This experience made Washington, as much as Franklin, a believer in union. Now, these three lessons might suggest benefits from American independence, but were insufficient to support it as a realistic option. A final shared lesson carried carried more weight. Despite the war's ultimate outcome, the British were beatable in New World combat, Quote, this whole transaction gave us Americans the first suspicion that our exalted idea of the prowess of the British regulars was not well-founded, Franklin wrote of Braddock's route. Washington had been there to see it and to report that, at least in frontier fighting, Virginia soldiers outperformed British troops. If put to the test, they might do so again. Coupled with the disastrous effects of British colonial policy following the French and Indian War, these shared lessons helped to nurture the revolutionary spirit that brought Franklin and Washington back together a quarter century later to fight for and forge a new American nation. At war's end, what had happened is uh, Franklin had gone to London. He um, was named by the uh, Pennsylvania Assembly as their agent in London, dealing with London, trying to actually oust the proprietors from power. And as he was there, he was so successful that five more colonies made him their agent. (laughs) He also continued his scientific research and made connections all over Europe that would later prove invaluable. Meanwhile, Washington, after the war, had inherited Mount Vernon because his brothers had died. And 
during that time transformed what was a failing tobacco plantation into a very successful collection of five wheat farms. But a new war brought them back together in 1775. This is a story we all know, but if you really dissect it, it had three phases, of their, at least of their interaction. First phase was in Philadelphia. Franklin and Washington, when they arrived in Philadelphia for the Second Continental Congress, they were the most lionized delegates because by then they were the two most famous Americans. They were the delegates viewed as critical. Washington was a war hero from the French and Indian War. Franklin was, well, Franklin was Franklin. <laughs> and this is a uh, painting of Franklin arriving at Philadelphia two day, uh, a week before the con- Constitutional, uh, the, excuse me, the Second Continental Congress. Then um, they were both immediately appointed to all the committees. I mean, other people got one committee or every war committee. Well, Franklin and Washington was appointed. Well, Franklin was known in Pennsylvania for his war effort during the French and Indian War, as was, of course, Washington. They were also, especially Franklin, pointed to all the key diplomatic committees that tried to keep trade going despite the blockade and the resistance to the British. Second, there was their wartime meetings that followed. So the first period was several months, and then Franklin helps orchestrate the appointment of Washington as commander-in-chief because he knew Washington, he trusted, he thought he'd be um, great at the job, so he was key to getting Washington, one of the key people in getting Washington to be commander-in-chief. Then, But he remained for another year in Philadelphia with the Second Continental Congress, becoming by far the most important delegate there and head of all the war committees. So they met together often. They met in Philadelphia, but they also met in the battlefield. They met in New Jersey. They, when it was there before that in, in, um, in Cambridge, where the Washington commanded the troops during the siege of Boston. And Franklin even accompanied the troops. I was over 70 back then. Even accompanied the troops in the invasion of Canada. So there were a lot of wartime meetings, and then apart. Then Franklin, after the Declaration of Independence in 1776, Franklin is, is sent to um, Europe as the top diplomat in Europe, and then they had to work together from afar with letters and coordination where Franklin, um, because what's key to the war is the French support, the French supplying the troops, the ships, the clothing, the, the, the uniforms, the weapons. And Franklin had to organize all that and then work with Washington to get at the right place. Indeed, of course, the war ends at Yorktown when French Navy and more French troops than American troops, which Franklin had coordinated, blockaded the army um, in, in Yorktown and led to the, the, the critical victory. So they were working together very closely at each of these stages. In fact, Franklin organized all the great generals who came over to help, like Lafayette. Those were arranged by Franklin and von Steuben. Um, so they were working together back and forth. I just read one episode from this. Um, Franklin's prior experience in London and during the French and Indian War led him to foresee sooner than most the need for undertaking two fundamental reforms. This is during the war. This is actually begins before he leaves for France. First, he consistently spoke and thought in terms of America. 
rather than of colonies. Believing that the British could only be defeated and liberties secured by a united effort. And he drew the first political cartoon ever in an American newspaper. Having pushed the Arbonne plan of union during the French and Indian War, Franklin introduced a similar though somewhat stronger draft constitution for the colonies in July of 1775. Clearly federal in nature, with each colony retaining control over matters peculiar to it, Franklin's draft held concepts that he later pushed at the Constitutional Convention, including proportional representation in Congress and centralized power over commerce, war and peace, foreign affairs, western lands, and such domestic matters as, quote, thought necessary for the general welfare. These would become the same issues that Washington also embraced by the revolution's end in his circular letter to the states. Second, while many patriots blinded by faith in their cause believed that a citizen soldiers could quickly vanquish a hireling army, Franklin, sobered by experience dealing with obstinate British leaders, foresaw a long war. Summer soldiers and part-time militia could not win such a war, only a unified, disciplined force. Yet as commander of troops besieging Boston, not only did Washington face the daunting task of transforming volunteer militiamen from various colonies into a single continental army, he had to do so knowing that most of the men had signed up only to the end of 1775. Confronting an army of professional soldiers, Franklin and Washington knew that their army must be reconstituted on a more permanent basis. As Congress came around to this view, once militia commissions began expiring with the British still embedded in Boston, it assigned Franklin to multiple committees charged with reforming the army. This brought him back into direct contact with Washington. And again, there are a series of meetings in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in New Jersey, in Philadelphia, when Frank Washington would come down there. That's the war, and I talk at great length, of course, by their interaction to the war. But let me jump ahead. After the war, Franklin um, came back and served three terms as governor of Pennsylvania. Again, he's over 75 at the time. He makes Joe Biden look young. <laughs> Washington returned to his plantation and brought it back into profitability. But both, from their various perches, pushed for a stronger federal union that they thought was needed, giving the, the chaos descending on the colony, the states now, as independent, separate, sovereign states. And they both championed holding, holding an intercolonial convention to devise a stronger union. So let me pick up there with the Constitutional Convention. Now, when they were there, they both joined with other a few other delegates in drafting something called the Virginia Plan. They arrived before the meeting started, and they formed a committee that drafted so-called Virginia Plan that was introduced as the basis for a um, to replace the Articles of Confederation with a fortified federal government with just those powers that Franklin and Washington had been arguing for five years were needed. That is, power over war and central power over war and peace, interstate and international commerce and to tax and spend for the general welfare. Then during the convention, they both worked separately and together on the key compromises that made it happen. Franklin later called it a grand chess game with multiple players. Now, let me read a little bit from that period and, and catch you up with that. In addition to countless lesser additions and alterations, turning the Virginia plan into a framed constitution required three major compromises or innovations, each of which engaged Franklin and Washington. 
Foremost among these, the so-called Great Compromise, restructured Congress to have a proportionally representative, popularly elected House of Representatives, and a Senate with equal representation from each state. Under the Articles of Confederation, each state had equal representation, and there was no proportional representation. Now, although Franklin personally favored a popularly elected unicarmal legislature, as was in his Pennsylvania, he had written the Constitution for the state of Pennsylvania, and that, that's what that had. He foresaw the final compromise from the outset and helped to broker it. Here's a mural from the U.S. Capitol showing Franklin under his um, mulberry tree in his house, which was a block from Independence Hall, meeting with very del- various delegates, um, trying to broker out these compromises. He foresaw the so-called Great Compromise from the beginning. Indeed, while led by Washington's Virginia and Franklin's Pennsylvania, a majority of delegates delegations supported proportional representation for Congress so that every state would have based on their population, a determined minority, mostly from small states, demanded equal state representation and threatened to scuttle any deal without it. A fight over principle with practical implications, the contest for representation was not resolved for two months. Taking the measure of both sides in his folksy, pragmatic way, Franklin now broke with his state to argue for the compromise. If a proportional representation takes place, the small states contend that their liberty will be in danger. If an equality of votes is put in its place, the large states say their money will be in danger. Nothing that we, noting that we are met to do something, Franklin urged the convention to act like a carpenter who, when framing a table from two planks of uneven parts, takes a little from both to make a good joint. The result was our Senate and House. As the delegates pushed on, debates over the president consumed more time at the convention than those of any other topic and were not resolved until the end. Having agreed to begin by working through the Virginia plan, the delegates reached its resolutions regarding the executive on June 1. These called for, quote, a national executive chosen by Congress. Think of a prime minister. Besides a general authority to execute national laws, it stated, this is the Virginia plan, this officer ought to enjoy the executive rights vested in Congress by the Confederation, which I guess makes sense if he's just a somebody picked by the legislature. Well, if these executive rights included all those once held by British monarchs and later vested in Congress, the provision gave vast powers to the president. Beyond executing laws, the king held direct authority over war and peace, the military, foreign affairs, appointing officers and judges, and granting pardons. Since the Articles of Confederation vested powers over all these matters in Congress, they might go to the executive under the Virginia plan. Then again, they might not. The resolution was, the resolutions, the Virginia plan itself, was frustratingly vague on this score. Now, this is a picture of Washington at the convention, drawn at the convention, perhaps because Washington, the presumed first president, was sitting among them when the delegates reached their resolutions, they fell unusually silent, the resolutions on the executive. After brief comments by two supporters of a strong executive, a considerable pause ensued, and the chair asked if the delegates were ready to pass the provisions. Coming from Washington's delegation, no one seemed inclined to dispute them. Well, fully Washington's equal, and never one to defer, this is a drawing from Franklin from the convention, uh, who is now 81, 
Franklin broke the silence. Emphasizing that the structure of the executive is, quote, of great importance, he urged delegates to, quote, deliver their sentiments on it before the question was put. This comment burst the dam and debate flooded the room. Four days later, with the discussion still raging, Franklin said with, with, with reference to Washington and the presidency, the first man put at the helm would be a good one. Nobody knows what sort may come afterwards. The executive will always be increasing here as elsewhere till it ends in monarchy, period. Favoring a weak executive, at one point or another during the debates, Franklin advocated circumcising the presidency with term limits and an advisory council by limiting the veto power and adding a provision for impeachment and a removal for office. As he explained about impeachment, it would be best to provide in the Constitution for a regular punishment for the executive when his misconduct should deserve it and for his honorable acquittal when he should be unjustly accused. Washington, for his part, consistently supported a strong executive and carried most of the states with him. Hence the debate and their active role on the presidency. Now, the third compromise, the third key compromise is on slavery, which I spend a lot of time on here because it's really dynamic. But I'm going to hold it and talk about it later because it comes back up later in even more interesting con content. Um, for now, let me just say um, uh, that at the convention's end, surveying the final plan e evolved from their Virginia plan, Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph and Virginia Delegate George Mason, Washington's neighbor, warned delegates that such a constitution with its vaguely defined but clearly engorged and separately elected presidency, quote, would end either in monarchy or a tyrannical aristocracy and voted against the Constitution. Franklin had similar concerns throughout the proceedings, but in part due to his trust in Washington as the first president, and in part because he believed the stronger federal union was essential, that is, that the alternative of doing nothing was worse, he accepted the final draft, which actually surprised people in the room. The, he was one of the four main opponents of the, of the uh, positions re regarding the presidency, that and Elderbridge Jerry, a future vice president. His la lingering worries, however, may account for his widely quoted answer to the grand dame of Pennsylvania High Society, Elizabeth Powell, when she allegedly asked him after the convention ended if he had created a republic or a monarchy. A republic, Franklin reportedly replied, if you can keep it. Well, riddled with compromises, at core, this was Washington's constitution, especially with regard to the presidency. After the convention approved it, he declared, in the aggregate, it's the best constitution that can be obtained at this epoch. In particular, Washington defended the powers given to Congress as, quote, no more than are indispensably necessary to perform the functions of good government, and never doubted the broad authority conferred on the president, even after Lafayette, Writing to him from France, singled out those extensive executive powers, those were Lafayette's words, as one of only four points, along with no Bill of Rights, no guarantee of jury trials, no presidential term limits, questioned by European philosophers who had reviewed the document. In his reply, Washington grave ground only on a Bill of Rights and guaranteed jury trials by suggested in due course amendments could be provided for them, which they were. Now, Franklin shared anti-federalist concerns over presidential power and wanted a more democratic constitution, but endorsed the final draft as better than nothing and perhaps best of all. Quote, I agree to 
this was his speech, the last speech given at the Constitutional Convention by anyone. He was deferred to to the end. I agree with this Constitution with all its faults because I think a general government is necessary for us. And there is no form of government but which may not be a blessing to the people if well administered or a bane if administered poorly. Franklin understood the divisions splitting the convention and opted to support whatever compromise could produce a workable federal government. If the states met again, he darkly warned, it would only be for the purpose of cutting one another's throats. <laughs> with, a nod to Franklin, with a nod to Washington, Franklin expressed his faith that the Constitution, quote, is likely to be well administered for a course of years, yet predicted that it would end in despotism as other forms have done before, when the people shall become so corrupted as to need despotic government. Those were his words to the convention at the time. Now, Franklin and Washington embraced the Constitution because it realized their long-held ambitions for a fortified federal government with consolidated authority over commerce, defense, and taxation. Washington also secured a strong independent presidency that Franklin th saw as overly monarchical. Coming from large states and fundamentally nationally minded, neither Franklin nor Washington favored a Senate with two members from each state, but both accepted it as necessary compromise. Southern delegates, including Washington, also secured critical safeguards for slavery that many northern delegates, including Franklin, hoped would fail. It tells much about their rational pragmatism and faith in Republican virtue that despite its compromise, Franklin and Washington so fully accepted the Constitution. Now, let me go back to that compromise over slavery um, that I skipped before and go back to how it played out between the two of them. Slavery was one matter that unbridgeably divided Franklin and Washington, just as it became the subject that 70 years later tore apart the states that they had worked so hard to knit together. Coming from the South and knowing full well the issue's divisiveness, temporizing on slavery was nothing new for Washington. It was his practice. Born into a slaveholding family, Washington owned over 100 slaves and controlled nearly 200 more of his wife's, in his wife's dower estate. During and after the Revolution, critics of slavery from Quaker abolitionists to his much-loved military aide Lafayette pleaded with Washington to denounce the institution publicly or at least to set an example by freeing his own slaves. While he sometimes sympathized with these views in private, he always equivocated. Meanwhile, the number of his own slaves increased. He never freed any during his lifetime, and he pursued those that ran away. Those in human bondage knew his pri who knew his private face never saw Washington as a liberator. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Not so Franklin. Since taking the reins of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society in the spring of 1787 during his second term as governor, he had assumed an ever more prominent 
international role, criticizing the slave trade and urging emancipation. He pleaded with influential slaveholders, such as Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph, Washington's first attorney general, to free their slaves and urged new, um, New Hampshire Governor John Langdon to stop his state's merchant shippers from participating in the slave trade. Franklin hosted both of his both men at his home during the convention and felt free to press them on the issue. His strategy on slavery, which he freely expressed to his allies in the society, was to bring the southern states into a fortified federal union and then have that government work to end slavery. He did not wait long. His final assault on slavery took the form of a petition to Congress in 1790 that he signed as president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, declaring, quote, that equal liberty was originally the portion and is still the birthright of all men. It called on members of Congress, quote, to step to the very urge of the powers vested in you for discouraging every species in the trafficking of the persons of our fellow men. Paraphrasing the Constitution uh, to say those powers, he wrote, included promoting the welfare and securing the blessings of liberty to the people of the United States. The petition asserted those blessings are rightfully to be administered without distinction of color to all descriptions of people. He supported this petition in the press with a slashing satire of slaveholders' defense of the institution. This drew on his newspaper background, a history of assuming fictional guises, like those of Silence Do Good and Richard Saunders, to make his points. Here, writing under the pseudonym of an Algerian divine that everyone knew was Franklin. In words mocking Georgia Congressman James Jackson's speech to Congress against the anti-slave petitions, Franklin had a Mohammed Ibrahim ask regarding white Europeans then enslaved in North Africa. What is so pitiable in their present condition? Is their condition made worse by falling into our hands? No, for here they are brought into a land where the sun of Islamism gives forth its light and shines in full splendor. They had the opportunity of making them acquainted with the true religion and thereby savings their immortal souls. Now, modern satire relies on cultural relativism. And here Franklin displayed his modernity. He went on to write, while serving us, again, in the name of Muhammad Ibrahim, while serving us, we take care to provide them with everything, Ibrahim said about Arabs and their European Christian slaves. Quote, the laborers in their own countries, as I am well informed, are worse fed, lodged, and clothed than the slaves here. The speech include, and concluded by affirming that the Quran condoned slavery in a passage that Franklin drew word for word from the biblical verse um, Ephesians 6, 5, cited by Jackson to Congress. Slaves, serve your master with cheerfulness. No reader could mistake Franklin's meeting. Washington fumed, privately denouncing intervention as untimely and unwise. Now, Washington's only decisive act against slavery came in freeing his own by his will after his death. But delaying unto death to relieve, re reveal his intention of freeing his slaves and then postponing that release until his widow died 
drain the act of its potential political and social significance. Trusted aides like Lafayette, who I've already mentioned, and, and prominent abolitionists, including uh, Virginia Quaker Robert Pleasance, had urged Washington to act earlier, ideally during the idealistic fever of the, um, fervor of the American Revolution, when it might have made a difference. Once dead, Washington could neither explain his motives nor present his final act as a model for slaveholders. Even his wife, who owned most of the slaves at Mount Vernon as her dower property, did not follow his lead and kept the mixed-race children sired by her father, her own half-sisters, and her son, her grandchildren, enslaved. Southern slaveholders easily dismissed Washington's deathbed act, and northern abolitionists struggled to give it meaning. No one can know what might have happened had the two icons of the revolution, Franklin and Washington, stood together against slavery at the nation's founding. Certainly some of their contemporaries thought it might make a difference. As it happened, they split over the issue and with them the nation. Washington and southern states retained their slaves. Franklin and northern ones rejected the institution. Indeed, Franklin's Pennsylvania was the first state to abolish slavery by statute. Now, Virginia abolitionist Robert Pleasance, who I've already named, closed the letter he wrote in 1784, right at the end of the Revolution, to Washington with a warning. Notwithstanding thou art now receiving the tributes of praise from a grateful people, the time is coming when all actions will be weighed in an equal balance and undergo an impartial examination. How inconsistent then will it appear to posterity should it be recorded that the great General Washington would keep a number of people in absolute slavery who were by nature equally entitled to freedom as himself. Now, the same test applies to all the founders. Despite their flaws, Franklin and Washington have held up better than most leaders of any age. Theirs was the founding partnership that launched a nation. Over the years, the harshest critics of Franklin have focused on his promotion of stultifying middle-class virtues. No man was glorious who was not laborious, he wrote in an archetypical Poor Richard's Albanac aphorism for 1734, adding a year later the ever-famous one, early to bed and early to rise, makes man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Generations of Americans took Washington's maxim to heart and credited them as their way to wealth. Just as surely, generations of intellectuals, from Edgar Allan Poe to F. Scott Fitzgerald, marked Franklin as a pedestrian prophet of pragmatism. Yet Franklin was a man of many faces, who, as an author, hid behind masks, raising from his first, the witty widow, Silence Duguid, to his last, the Arab slaver, Muhammad Ibrahim. Judging Franklin solely in his Richard Saunders guise fails to do him justice. Now, Washington did not wear multiple masks, but so carefully cultivated the firm face of Republican virtue that he once famously cautioned his portraiture, the person painting his portrait, Gilbert Stuart, he said, who said, show me a face that reflects you. And he replied, my countenance have never yet betrayed my feelings. Look at your $1 bill and you'll agree with that. This as- That was the Gilbert Stuart painting. This aspect of Washington's personality can make it as difficult to see behind his public image as to look beyond Franklin's multiple guises. Then, as now, the Pennsylvania printer 
and the Virginia planner appeared too dissimilar to maintain a lasting friendship, especially since the former posed as a man of the people while the later preened as one above them. Yet focusing on their distinct public images obscures their fundamental similarities. Hardworking and entrepreneurial, Franklin and Washington had successful business careers outside government and never viewed themselves as primarily politicians. Both prospered as colonists and supported royal rule until realizing that Britain would not extend basic English rights to Americans. Jealous of their liberties, they turned against the crown and never looked back. Each nurtured deep, lifelong relationships with both men and women. Natural leaders, people trusted them, and they trusted others. Both men listened more than they talked, compromised on means to secure ends, relied on others, sacrificed for the common good, and never wavered on principle. And both were reformers, Franklin compulsively so. They saw problems and tried to fix them. Franklin's fixes ranged from mechanical to moral, lightning rods and bifocals to constitutions and possible popular philosophy. Washington's included constitutions, of course, but also agricultural reforms. Shaped by the Enlightenment, Franklin and Washington shared a Republican ideology, ideology and a progressivist faith that relied on human reason and divine providence rather than traditional ways and established dogmas. They sought truth and accepted facts. Life could get better, they believed. Theirs did. As the old order collapsed around them, they crafted a better one to replace it, one that has lasted for over two centuries. They did not see it as perfect and never thought it would last forever. If the people allowed it, Franklin warned, even the Constitution for all its virtues would lead to tyranny, with the president serving, as he called it at the convention, the fetus of a king. The example of Franklin and Washington, however, shows what individuals can do in times of Faction, fracture, and failure to address problems and improve the state of affairs. We will not be driven by fear, the legendary broadcast journalist Edward All Murrow would later say about Americans, if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. He surely had the lives of Franklin and Washington in mind. And so, at the onset of World War II, the war that made Murrow famous, in his Four Freedoms speech, a resolute Franklin Delano Roosevelt quoted Franklin, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty or safety. Franklin was more than a Philadelphia printer. Washington much more than a Tidewater planner. They were the larger-than-life American originals whose partnership in the revolutionary times laid the foundation for the world's first continental republic, which has lasted for nearly 250 years. Each recognized the other's goodness and greatness and viewed one another as partners in the fight for liberty. Others saw this true. Despite their critics, Franklin was elected to his state's highest office unanimously, twice, and Washington was elected to the nation's highest office unanimously, twice. Central to their Republican conception of service, both men willingly relinquished their public stations to return to their private positions. Indeed, both preferred private life to public power. 
Yet they were and are the two indispensable Americans, Franklin and Washington, the founding partnership. Thank you. We have a little time for questions. Yeah. We have a little time for questions, so... And I'd like to remind everyone that they're listening to Edward Larson speaking about his new book, Franklin and Washington, um, The Founding Partnership. Who would like to ask the first question? The controversy at the Washington High School about the murals. Oh, yeah. What do you think of it? Um, the, she asked about the controversy at Washington High School where where there are what I think are magnificent murals, in my own opinion, painted during the... Um, during the uh, Depression in the Works Products Administration. And I think that, honestly, I just think that the students should use this as a means of education because they were, they actually, the painter actually captures honest aspects of Washington. Washington did a lot of great things, but he did, he was the architect. He wanted to open the frontier and he was the architect of the Indian removal policy. And he sent, as president, he sent three armies, the first two were utterly destroyed, three armies into the Ohio country to defeat the, uh, the Native Americans. And so he pushed that, and that's one of the, one of the drawings showing the, uh, Indian, uh, the, the deceased Native American in Washington. And if you look at that picture, I wish I had brought it. If you look closely at it, Washington's going like this over the, and he was smart enough. He painted Franklin way in the corner with his eyes looking the other way like, oh, my God. Um, Franklin was dealt a lot with the Native Americans. He was in charge of Native American policy for Pennsylvania. And then when the Second Continentals occurred, he was made head of Native American policy for Congress. And he always negotiated, met with them. He knew them. Indeed, he's the first person to record and publish Native American speeches, which he thought were so valuable. So he published those. He published a book of them. So he was, he had a very different view. Remember, Quaker Pennsylvania never um, fought the Native Americans. They negotiated treaties. And, uh, and Franklin picked up that policy. So I thought, you know, I do think you have to educate the students, but I think they're magnificent, and I certainly wouldn't want to see them destroyed. Now, is that the wrong place? I don't know. And I know this splits, um, splits San Francisco, and people may have a much better than idea coming from another's, but I think they capture both. They tell us both about the accurate time, and they also tell us about the Depression era. And how people thought then. So the question is how you can properly contextualize them. So from looking at them, the people, the students there feel empowered by them, not diminished. And that's a, that's a, and, and ultimately I'll trust the, the local teachers there to do the right thing. But I can see what, I can see the, I can see the problem, but they are, as a historian, you look at them and this guy, this guy saw something about both men in those paintings. Anyway, that's the best I can do. Next question. Thanks. That was a uh, very interesting talk. Uh, My question was, you mentioned the the similarities between the two men in terms of their philosophy based on the Enlightenment and other things, despite their their material circumstantial differences. Um, Well, they were both really rich. Right, right. They started off poor and they became rich. And my my question is, both of them were prominent Masons. Yes. And I'm wondering how that orientation and those philosophies may have influenced their public 
policies, if at all? Um, well, it, it certainly affected their friendship. That's, I talk about that in the book, because I, I can't, you know, there's so many things that I can't put in. But um, they were both head of the Masons for their state. I mean, they weren't just Masons. They were like Masons. And um, <laughs> it helped bind them together. And, of course, it helped Franklin when he was over in um, England. And it helped Washington in dealing with the British other officers because most of them were Masons. So this was a, they believed in the Masonic movement as a rational pragmatic um, union uh, er, um, effort that helped draw people together across colonial lines and internationally. And uh, it affected the way um, they were both very active. It affected the way they thought, but it also helped bind them together as friends. It was one of the ties that nothing could break apart, even their differences over things like slavery. So that's a good point, and I do talk about that in the other... Yeah. yeah, and the National uh, um, Center for the Masons in Alexandria, Virginia, is a do- totally devoted to George Washington. There's a huge uh, statues. The, the first monument built to Washington was the Masonic Monument in Alexandria, and it is spectacular. It's yeah. a large obelisk, and it's beautiful. I, you know, it's a great place to visit. Yes. Sir. What do you think their uh, attitudes and interpretations would be about the Second Amendment? You know, w- with respect to how it's being. Uh, debated today and what's going on in the country today. And and w- is it true that the, re- the real reason behind the Second Amendment was to allow uh, militias to be equipped to put down slave, re- slave rebellions? Now, that's not, I'll say up front, that's not a question that I dealt with in the book. Um, and uh, not an issue I dealt with in dealing with these people. Franklin, I don't know of ever, directly discussing it. Now, he's certainly, both of them were leaders of the militia. Both of them believed in state militias. And certainly both of them, um, Washington, the first, um, the, the Constitution does not require the president to send out amendments. They come from Congress, not from presidents. But the Bill of Rights actually were the only amendments ever sent out under the president's signature. So Washington actually sent out, because they thought that would help with passage, He actually so he sent out the Second Amendment. Um, you know, it was a compromise amendment, just like the Establishment Clause was a compromise amendment, and back then was viewed that Congress won't establish a church, we'll let states do it. It's not how we think of it today. And the other was a compromise, and you can find people back then, I don't think it would have gotten out of Congress, but for the fact that some people thought it meant a state's rights amendment to defend the rights of states to have militias. Madison wrote it as he did to get those votes, but there were also people who passed it out thinking this is an individual rights. So you have people with both. It wouldn't have passed without a coalition of both of them. So how do you interpret it from them? Historically, until the Heller decision, it was always interpreted that this is a a states' rights amendment to protect the militia. I think that was needed to get it passed, but it was intentionally written in an ambiguous way, um, reflecting the politics of the day, just like the Establishment Clause was. But it's a good question. Yeah. Yes, sir. This is not a political question. What what do you think that either, particularly Franklin, would have thought of the recent impeachment proceeding? Well, I don't think either of them would understand the impeachment proceedings because you have to remember that both of them, you ask about the impeachment proceedings, both back then, no one would have anticipated national political parties, especially a national political parties in the Senate. 
because the way they designed the Senate, the Senate was not an elected body. It was appointed by the state legislatures, and they had plenty of experience with the Articles of Confederation Congress, which was the same way. So their assumption of all, there were no national political parties first until the, until 1800, until just about 1800. But beyond that, they always thought the Senate would represent the states. And therefore, with setting the number, they figured there were three regions of the country, north, middle, and south, then. They thought there'd be a fourth, the frontier, the west. So they thought there'd be four. And they thought the senators would all represent their states and their regions. And therefore, the number for impeachment was set at a number that would require two of the sections to agree. And when you added the frontier, three of the four sections to agree. That was the number. And they thought they would follow regional lines, so they would never have even considered a partisan procedure. And, of course, Washington ended his presidency complaining about partisanship. Um, Franklin just wouldn't have anticipated it because they thought the Senate was too much sect as wise men, I think they'd say, chosen by the various states to represent the states. And so if the president... um, upset what the accepted wisdom of leaders, not popularly elected, therefore he wouldn't have any control over who gets picked by by political, his political clout. They would pick by state legislatures who would act independently of, of his ideas, uh, the president's ideas. So they couldn't have anticipated how the the whole impeachment process would work as a partisan endeavor. And therefore, I don't think... Um, I mean, it, w- it certainly wouldn't have lived up to Franklin's expectations of it or Washington's thought of how it would work. But, you know, as Franklin said, they weren't perfect. <laughs> Maybe uh, a couple more? Yeah. Yes, yeah. sir. Yes. Uh, James Madison did uh, quite a few notes on the uh, Constitutional yes. Convention, summer of uh, 1787. Yes. And both Washington and Franklin are not really in those notes uh, very extensively. But I understand that Washington did a lot of... Uh, meetings at night amongst the warring factions and got some compromises outside of the meetings. Is there any evidence that Franklin was also part of that? Because he, he it's a natural f- thing for him to be a reconciler of, of, of different viewpoints. Well, actually, Franklin is pretty prominent in those notes. And he says a lot of key things. The 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 uh, Connecticut Compromise was clearly his bidding and his, you know, the and his and the meetings were at his house and he was he chaired the committee that worked it out. Um, He comes in often. Um, Washington was the presiding officer and therefore he did not speak and therefore he was silent. But I trace I I cover it in this book. Um, But I also um, when Washington came to the Constitutional Convention, uh, wrote in as the big hero with the big line. His first thing he did was go to Franklin's house. And they, he went off into Franklin's house. Franklin had these key meetings. I showed the paint, famous painting in the capital of it um, under his mulberry tree where people would come out and work out details. Franklin was front and center in every compromise. Um, Washington was behind every compromise. And I talk about this somewhat here, but at great length in my book, Return of George Washington, where all the key compromises, the three-fifths compromise, the the um, compromise over the the, the uh, presidency, um, the compromise over the um, um, uh, Senate, are all brokered. Well, they're all, they, there's a period of long division People fighting each other. And then they end 
on a particular day where Washington calls on a person who had been on the one side and now offers the compromise. And records show that that person who he calls on first on those days that broke the deadlocks had been at his house for dinner the night before. <laughs> is, there so, any, is there any evidence that the two of them collaborated? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, for that, that, you know, when they were talking about that. And they, so- they worked together. They, they met together. Um, but um, Washington is because of the nature of, but you got to pick on him of how he calls on people. And I try mm-hmm. to analyze that. And you, we have his votes, too. And his votes are, are, are critical. We don't have the votes of anybody but the states and the Virginia delegation because they're in Madison's votes and he only know how they voted within his own. But we can see Washington's vote. We can see Washington moving his vote, um, to effectuate compromises. And, uh, we see Franklin making key speeches and meeting with people. So they both, they both had this basic principle. They both had long espoused that we need a stronger federal government with power over which Articles of Confederation did not have over interstate and international commerce, the ability to tax and spend for the general welfare, um, and uh, power over foreign policy over the frontier, complete power over the frontier. These were new things. They had, those were the, the very powers that they advocate, had been advocating for at least five years, both of them, are all realized in the Constitution. Uh, I'd be, and Franklin, the, the call for the convention came from Washington's Virginia, and the first state to accept it was Franklin's Pennsylvania. And Franklin was the sitting governor of Pennsylvania, called president back then, at the time of the Constitutional Convention. So, yeah, they were both integrally involved. Now, I'm not saying they, you know, the details were worked out. Governor Morris, Madison, um, James Wilson, a lot of them, but they were working very closely. with. These were the two sort of icons. And if you look at the ratification debates... Everyone in America thought that this had been drafted by Washington and Franklin. You can read all the ratification debates, you know, because it was secret, so you didn't know the details. But it came out with their imprimatur, and they were viewed as, well, Jefferson said at the time that all of the America and all of the world knows that there are only two people responsible for American independence, Franklin and Washington. And the rest of us, we could be replaced. That was Jefferson's view of it all. And, of course, a- Adams famously said, all they'll remember about the revolution is Ben Franklin threw down his lightning bolt and up popped George Washington, and we won the war. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you, George. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. It was absolutely fantastic.